Our topic this week, out of the book of Genesis, chapter 9, Noah and the Rainbow, Reclaiming the Rainbow. Okay, so we're going to look a little bit at chapter 8, verse 20. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled a soothing aroma. So we have these two points here in, in, in chapter 8 leading us into chapter 9. Uh, that, and we've looked at this a little before. That uh, the first thing that Noah did when they came off the ark after the flood was to build an altar in order to thank God for his mercy, for his deliverance, for sustaining them, seeing them through that year on the ark, protecting them miraculously through the storm and through the waves, and, and gave thanks to the Lord for doing so. And also, secondly, that we see this, this separation, this division between clean animals and unclean animals goes all the way back to Noah's day. And, uh, and that's important, um, as we'll see a little further on and throughout the scripture. So God is consistent in his word. Okay, so now into chapter 9, starting verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar from somewhere else in the Bible? Yeah, that's what he told Adam and Eve, right? And so he's wanting Noah now to redo, right, what Adam and Eve were called to do because he's starting everything new. He's starting a new earth uh, and creating all things new. And so he's telling them to go forth and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? And that's God's calling upon us uh, physically and certainly spiritually to take God's message, to be fruitful in doing so, and to multiply and to fill the earth with his glory, with his truth. Right? So the depopulating, that's God's job. right? That's not man's job. right? So man should not be in the depopulating uh, business. Right? If God needs to do that, he will do that. He did it with the flood. Right? We'll, see, we'll leave that with him. Depopulation. Our job is not to depopulate. Our job is to populate the earth for him. And those who are trying to depopulate the earth, they're trying to play God, right? That's what they're doing there. Okay, so verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. And I think this is interesting that it's placed here. Uh, it just To me, it just all these little details verify the word of God. All right, if Moses was just writing a storybook, and just, you know, I don't think he'd include all the little details that we see here, that there were this many of the clean animals and this many of the unclean animals and that they sacrificed the clean animals and not the unclean, all these little details, and that the animals, there would be a dread, a fear of you would be a dread on all the animals, right? I, I doubt a lot of times when when uh, teachers or parents are t telling the Noah and the Ark story to an account to, to little children that they include this detail. You know, I think it just kind of skims over this part. But when we look at it, it really is amazing that truly every animal fears humans. Right? There is a fear instilled into all the animals. Now, obviously, Moses had not seen every animal. He'd never seen a polar bear. right? Uh, he never seen a, a, a Florida alligator, right? Uh, he never seen maybe a Bengal tiger or or uh, or a, or a um, panda bear. I'm sure there were a lot of animals that he never came in contact with, right? But he says something here. He makes a statement here. I mean, I'm writing something like uh, 3,600 years ago, or 300, 400 so years ago of an account that is dating back to Noah's day, which is like 4,400 years ago. And he's penning this to apply to all earth. And now that we are populating the earth, we do see. Pretty amazing. It's very rare. Even though these animals, these lions, these tigers, these bears, oh my, hey, they could easily come and do a lot of damage to humans, but they don't. A lot of them are a lot stronger, a lot bigger, a lot heavier, a lot more muscular, with longer claws and sharper teeth. 
and yet we don't see them coming in ravaging cities. It'll be pretty easy. Oh, they're having a parade today. Let's go down and eat them all. You know, they're all together. Humans kind of congregate together. It'd be pretty easy for, for, a, for a pack of lions, I don't know if they call it a pack, whatever, a bunch of lions or a pack of wolves to just go in and terrorize. But they don't. For the most part, they're afraid. Unless you happen to catch them off guard and out of fear, then they might react. Or if they're, uh, they're, they have a young with them and they feel a, a need to protect that young, they're fearful that you might be after their young or, or might be breeding season and they, they feel like you're trying to get their mate. You know, they're very rare. Under some circumstances, uh, you know, you accidentally step on them or whatever, you know, enter into their uh, area. Otherwise, you know, snakes, snakes are not chasing you, right? Rattlesnake starts rattling his, his rattle to say, get away, leave me alone. He's warning you. But he's not hiding in the grass and slivering over to you. Come a little closer. Just one more step, one more step, and I'll get him. No, they're not doing that, right? They're not there ready to pounce on you. Right? They're moving in the other direction. Snakes, not, uh, snakes are not trailing you. Right? They're not following after you. And so that's the reason, and the only reason, really the only explanation for that is, again, a lot of these are meat eaters. And the only explanation is the Bible says so. The Bible says that the dread of us puny little humans is going to be upon all of these, God's creation. And we see that as a fact, even though when Moses wrote it, it he didn't know it for a fact. Even sharks. They don't like humans. When they bite a human, it's by mistake. They think you're something else. And then after they taste you, they go, you know, you're disgusting. <laughs> you know? And they leave you alone. You know, they'll take out of an arm and that's it. They don't eat a whole human. Right? God put that in to all of the animal kingdom. And they basically leave us alone. I mean, whales could easily knock over boats and they don't just go around doing that. And the reason is, and the only reason, is because the Bible says so. It's the only logical explanation. And so God put that detail in there for us. Again, for me, verifying the truthfulness of God's word and his love and his carefulness for his children. Still in verse 2, and they are given into your hand, verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And this is the first time that flesh-eating is mentioned as being allowable in the Bible. So we've gone 1,600 years over that into history, 1,600 years into history, and no one was permitted to eat animals until this point. Now we're only in chapter 9 of the Bible, 39th sermon, but nonetheless, we're only in chapter 9 of the Bible. But for that time period, God did not allow it. And then here is the first time where he mentions it. And obviously, he's talking about clean animals here. You know, it's not specifically mentioned in this text. They're mentioned five verses earlier, right? You know, we just looked at that. And so obviously, you, know, you, don't have to, you can read it in context. That's what we have to do. We have to read around it to get the full picture. And so obviously, it's talking about clean animals. The Bible's consistent with that. You know, Moses didn't pen that down for 800 to 1,000 or so years uh, after this in Leviticus. But it's clear here, he's only referring to clean animals, because it says also, as the herbs. Well, we don't eat all herbs, right? Have you ever tried poison ivy leaves? You know, that, you know, we don't eat that. We don't eat pine needles. We don't eat oak leaves, right? So we don't eat all the herbs. There are certain herbs that are for food, and there are certain herbs that are not for food. Right? And so there are certain animals that God gave permission to during this time period. Of course, in heaven we won't be eating them. Uh, and again, for the first 1,600 years we didn't eat them. But for this time period he permitted clean animals. And then there are other animals that definitely are not permitted. They got a purpose. Right? They're scavengers. Right? The pigs, they eat all kinds of junk. They clean up the earth. Right? They'll eat poop. They'll eat everything. Right? They're great scavengers. They're great cleaners. Vultures are great cleaners. That doesn't mean you should eat them. Right? Lobsters and clams, they clean the bottom of the earth and see, and they, they got a purpose. That doesn't mean we eat filters, right? That we eat them that eat garbage. They're not garbage eaters. And so the distinction there, 
Uh, but it does specifically and clearly mention, do not eat its blood. If you're going to eat the flesh, don't eat it with its blood. And so it's mentioned here, it's mentioned several times, it's mentioned in Leviticus, it's mentioned in the book of Acts. So it's mentioned several times scattered through the Bible. And very important reason why, we'll see that in a minute, but it's very clear that God doesn't want us eating, we're going to eat flesh, to not eat it with the blood. Now, I have news for you. It's almost impossible to find in any restaurant for McDonald's, Burger King, who are not selling kosher meat, or any fast food restaurant, or even high-class restaurant, or almost any supermarket, you're not going to find properly blood-drained meat there. You'd have to go to follow the Bible and to live biblically. We'd have to go to a kosher market if we're going to eat flesh of meat, flesh animals. Uh, and go down to St. Pete, Joel's, kosher market down there, and so that'd be one type of place that you can get it. So there's a lot of people who want to follow the Bible, believe they're following the Bible, but totally miss this pretty plain text, again, scattered all throughout the Bible, to not eat the blood if you're going to eat flesh animals. Verse 5, Surely the, your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning, from the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man, from the hand of every brother's man's brother, I will require the life of man. So the life blood, that's why he doesn't want us eating the blood. The life is in the blood. And so two aspects of that, that life in the blood, both in the animal, the life is in the blood. So everything travels through the bloodstream in the animal. So if that animal was sick, before it got slaughtered, whether it had cancer or whatever diseases it had, they were in the bloodstream. And if we eat the blood, then we are taking those diseases in us as well. As well as everything else, the emotions, everything, the enzymes flowing through the blood. And so if that animal in that slaughterhouse has just been trucked over there and pushed and prodded and poked and, and smelling the and hearing the animals before it getting slaughtered and, and, and smelling the blood and their death, and, and that's causing anxiety in that animal. That anxiety is flowing through the bloodstream. And that fear is flowing through the bloodstream and entering into the meat. And then we're taking that into us as well. We are what we eat. And then the second aspect is the life is in the blood that God created life and gives us life through blood. We have life because we have blood, and the Messiah shed his blood for us, giving us eternal life. So giving us his life, his blood, he shed it for us. He gave himself for us. Thus, the blood represents the specialness of God's salvation for us, God's great love for us, demonstrated in his blood and the blood sacrifice of the animals, uh, that were sacrificed in the sanctuary or pointing forward to the Messiah. Thus he says, don't eat it. It's not just for eating. It had a special purpose when it was in the animal to give it life and also pointing forward and symbolizing the life of Messiah given for us. So he says, don't eat it, and he will hold us accountable for taking anyone's life, for taking their life, blood, and killing them. So verse 11, now into the topic of the Subject for this week, I will establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So very clear. Wonderful promise. He's going to make a covenant. He's going to make a promise with us to never cut off the waters of the flood. Never cause the earth to cease by water. And this is mentioned several times in this chapter. One time, in actually chapter 8, it doesn't specifically mention by water. It just says, I will no longer destroy the earth. And we know that's not full, the full story, because we know he will destroy the earth. But as we continue to read here, just like with the aspect of the, the herbs and the, and the flesh, as we read here, it now gets more specific and gives us the rest of the details that he won't destroy the earth with water. 
again. He did it once with water, but now he's making a covenant, a promise, to not cut off the earth by the flood, by the waters. And in verse 14, And when I bring a cloud over the earth, the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my everlasting covenant between me and you and every living creature. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So we have this assurance. So we don't have to fear every time it rains, unless you live along a riverbed, right? Because it might flood there. But if you live on, have a house on top of Mount Everest, you don't have to worry it's not going to flood there. Right? It's not going to flood the whole earth ever again. Now, they didn't believe it. We'll get in a few weeks uh, to the Tower of Babel. They built the Tower of Babel in, in opposition to this wonderful promise, this wonderful covenant that God has given to us that he won't destroy the earth with water. And so they didn't believe him. They didn't trust him. They didn't take this message. They didn't take this covenant. They didn't take this symbol that God has given. And the symbol that he gave us of that promise is the rainbow. And the rainbow is a beautiful thing. Rainbows beautiful. You like to see rainbows? Stop and pause and look at rainbows. They're beautiful. God has given us them as a wonderful promise. When we look at them, we should remember God's promise that he won't destroy the earth by a flood ever again. Now, what is it that causes a rainbow to form? What do we need to have a rainbow? Water and light, two elements, water and light. And one time a group of us were looking at this beautiful rainbow that had shown up in the sky, and we're standing there looking at it and just admiring it. And one of the people in our group, he was a real brainiac, and he said, did you know that rainbows are formed by the light hitting at such and such an angle, and when it hits only at that angle, that's what causes the rainbow to see? And then there was this other person in the group, and she said, you just ruined it. <laughs> and she walked away, you know. <laughs> was, she was just admiring the beauty, the colors, the archway, you know. And, and now with the facts of it, oh, that just took it all away. I don't want the facts. I just like the emotion of it, the beauty of it, the, 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 the feeling of it, that it makes me feel good that I like it, you know. And, and, and I, I thought that was quite interesting. I mean, I, I was enjoying the beauty as well. I was enjoying the colors as well in the, in the sky there. And the, um, but I thought, hey, that's interesting. There's also some history, some, some facts that go along with it. There's some mathematics that go along with it. There is some interaction of the light and the water crystals and, and that makes that thing. And so I think that's beautiful as well. And it is these two things, the water and the sun, you need both. And the rainbow symbolizes two aspects of God, like the water and the sunlight. And that is, the rainbow reminds us that God did destroy the earth with water. That God does judge. That God does hold us accountable. That there will be a judgment day. And he won't just allow us to continue to do whatever we want, do whatever feels good. And yet, with that is also mercy. God's mercy is demonstrated. That for 120 years, God had Noah warning the people that a flood is going to come. Turn their hearts from their wicked ways, from their selfish ways, from their corrupt ways, and to turn back to God. And God also gave them the evidence of the animals going into the ark. All the unclean animals by twos. All the clean animals by fourteens, seven pairs. Amazing. Amazing. Miraculous. All these wild animals and strange animals and different animals and animals that don't necessarily get along, all coming at just the right number. There were no threes. There was no third one tagging along. Oh, I wish I can get in there, (laughs) you know of the unclean, no 15th one of the clean ones trying to squeeze his way in there. They all knew, just 14 of the clean, just two of the unclean. They all knew, and they marched their way to Noah, to the ark, and marched their way up the plank and came in. Miraculous. God gave evidence, and God giving evidence, he, gave, he was showing mercy to them, showing that he was serious about what Moses, or what Noah had been warning them about. 
So we see God's mercy before the flood. And yet we see the flood with the judgment. And we see God's mercy after the flood in sustaining Noah and his family and then telling them to repopulate the earth and creating a new earth. And that symbolism there is also symbolism of our own lives as well. We come to the Lord. Well, before we come to the Lord, we're carnal, sinful. Yet God sends his spirit in various different circumstances, situations to warn us, uses people or the word of God or get our attention, sometimes blessings, sometimes problems. We try and get our attention and draw us to him. And if we're drawn to him and surrender our lives to him, he invites us to come and be immersed in water and be cleansed in water, symbolically cleansed in water, symbolizing the Messiah's death and burial and resurrection and our own death, burial, and resurrection to the old carnal nature and then come forth to newness of life filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what he did for the earth. He destroyed the old, cleansed it with water, and then he brought forth new olive branches, olive trees, and other trees and grass growing. He brought forth and created a new earth and said, be fruitful and multiply. And so the symbolism there of the flood is very important as it relates to our own lives. And thus the rainbow is a very important reminder of that. Yet God is mercy. Yes, God is very merciful. Yes, God is very loving. And yet there is still also a judgment day. And so it's both things together. Now, when you were growing up, if you're over 20 years old, when you were growing up, what were you told the rainbow signified? Very good. I think for most of us, it was the pot of gold, right? Maybe if you grew up totally in a Bible community and your parents were very godly and only read the Bible to you, but if you watched any TV commercials or anything like that, you were told Lucky Charms is what the rainbow was all about. And at the end of the rainbow, there's a pot of gold, right? Now, where in the Bible does it talk about leprechauns? <laughs> where in the Bible does it talk about a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow? It doesn't. It doesn't. So for a long time now, the world has been stealing God's covenant promise that reminds us of God's love, God's mercy, and God's judgment, and turning into some fable of selfishness and greed and luck and nothingness. And now today, if you're 120 years ago, you're told that a rainbow represents gay pride. It's time for believers in the Bible to reclaim God's covenant symbol. Too long we allow them to take it away. And when we allow them to take it away with lucky charms, Satan said, well, I'll just take it even further then. And to just the opposite, we will flaunt our disobedience to God and take and steal his symbol that reminds us of his judgment and defy his judgment. And we take his mercy and take it for granted. Because they're not struck down immediately, poof. God gave the wicked uh, ancient times 120 years. And because God didn't strike them down right away, they thought, well, hey, things continue as they have been. We're still okay. Noah's been preaching now 10 years now, 20 years now, 100 years now, 110 years now, and it hasn't rained yet. And just become more solidified in our sins. Now, there's really nothing different between those who are in defiance against God and those who are following God. At bottom at our original nature, we're all sinful. We're all carnal. We're all lustful. 
We're all perverted. The only difference is, is one group has realized that is not good. That is not normal. That is not helpful. That is not godly. And they've confessed their sins and confessed their carnal nature and allowed God to take those sins upon himself and given it over to him and accepted his death for their forgiveness and cleansing. Just as there was nothing of the old earth after the flood, all things became new. Then God changes us and makes all things new. And he lives in us with a changed life and a changed heart, but it's only by his power. So it's God who drew us, it's God who cleansed us, and it's God who changes us. But we and ourselves are no better than anyone else. The only difference is one group has surrendered to God and allow him to change their life, and the other group remains in defiance against him, against God. God loves everybody. But as he's demonstrated in the flood, he will not continue to allow us to destroy ourselves and to destroy others forever. He will bring judgment. And really, this beautiful picture of God who's both merciful and justice and judgment is really normal to any human with a thinking mind. Right? How many people would have a, a dog in their house that comes down with rabies and is threatening their own children, threatening the neighbors and the neighbor's children and the neighbor's pets. How many normal, logical, caring, loving people would allow such a creature to continue? No, any sane person would say, I'm sorry, I might love my dog, I might love my dog that has, it now has rabies, but I'm sorry, he cannot continue in his crazy mind, and crazy mindset, and putting my children in jeopardy, and my neighbors in jeopardy. That has to stop. And God's the same way. The care of that person towards their dog doesn't change because they get rabies. But if they're sane, they will change how they deal with that dog. They won't allow it to continue to roam the neighborhood. As far as I know, there's still no cure for rabies. He'd have to be put down. He'd have to be put to sleep. And that's what God has to do. It doesn't change his love for those that are disobedient to him. But he knows we're destroying ourselves when we remain in disobedience to him. And we end up affecting others and hurting others in our resistance and defilement and, and rebellion against God. And that's really all it comes down to. And the rainbow perfectly demonstrates that. Love, mercy, beauty, and yet balanced judgment when necessary. Now in a rainbow, how many colors are in a rainbow? No. Let's look back at a rainbow, real rainbow. How many colors are in a rainbow? Can you count them? No. No. Anyone go to school here? <laughs> and how many are in a rainbow? Seven. Seven are in a rainbow, right? Can anyone name the seven colors of the rainbow? Has anyone ever met Roy G. Biv? Anyone know Roy G. Biv? How many people know Roy G. Biv? Only a few. I guess you guys missed out on third and fourth grade or something like that, right? Roy G. Biv. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Roy G. Biv. That's how you know. That's how you pass the test. You don't have to Scrib notes and cheat that way, right? You just have that right deep in your mind, right? You don't need to write that one down. And that's the colors of the rainbow, seven colors of the rainbow, and those are the seven colors of 
the rainbow. But how many colors are on this lucky charm type of rainbow? Six. Six. And how about in the flags now, the current flag rainbows, how many colors? Six. God's rainbow in the sky, made by God, not by human hands, the mixture of light that God gave and the rain that God gave, is seven. God's number of perfection in the Bible, God created the earth seven days, God's perfect number, symbol of perfect, perfection, completion. And yet man comes along, and man tries to change what God has, doesn't like seven, and goes with six which is the symbol of man, biblically. Man was created on the sixth day, and you got 666 at the end, the symbol of sin. And so that's what mankind does. It tries to take it as taken, and try, they've done it. They've taken God's symbol, God's sign, God's covenant, God's promise, reminding us of God's mercy, his love, and yet his justice and judgment and have taken it and made it, made it a man-made creation, an abomination to him. And we sit back and let them do it. And it's high time we reclaim God's rainbow. We reclaim God's symbol. We reclaim God's covenant that he gives to us in the sky. Next time you see a rainbow, and every time you see a rainbow, let everybody and anyone around you let them know you're in a parking lot or wherever you're at, let people know, in a park, wherever you're at, let people know. That symbolizes God's promise never to destroy the earth again with a flood as he did in the past because of our sins, because of humanity's sins. Let them know. And if you see some flag, let them know also. Let them know they're missing a color. That they're incomplete. <laughs> And they need to be taught about what a real rainbow is. In Revelation 4, verse 2, a throne is set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So God surrounds his throne with a rainbow. Maybe because of the beauty of colors, but also symbolizing this balance of love and judgment, this uniting of the two. They're not separate things, but they're united together. And yet too often in even biblical circles, we focus too much on love, 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 and mercy and forgiveness. And everybody and everything at every funeral goes into heaven and ignore justice and judgment. We allow young kids to get away with doing whatever they want and whatever they feel, and passing them on to the next grade even though they failed, and never calling justice and judgment. But God's throne symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant, with the mercy seat and the Ten Commandments all meshed together in one Ark of the Covenant, of God's covenant, of God's promise, of love, mercy, and justice, and judgment. God's throne is based on that. God's throne is built on that. Without rules, without laws, and without accountability for laws, there is nothing but chaos. Who would want to live in a country that had no laws? What would happen at traffic stops if there were no stop signs, no red lights, no green lights? You'd have accidents everywhere. What would happen if there were no speed limits on the roads? There'd be death and carnage everywhere. What if people were allowed to just come in and steal whatever they want from you and take your life if they want? No one would be happy. The thieves and murderers wouldn't be happy and you wouldn't be happy. No one would want to live in such a place. 
And certainly God's throne is not that way. Certainly heaven is not that way. God's throne, God's system has right and wrong. And he knows what is right and he knows what is best for us. And he knows what will harm us and what is wrong. And he told us in his word. And so his throne is based upon the rainbow, the promise of love and yet justice and judgment. And that he will judge someday. He is long-suffering, gives us lots of time to come to him. But if we continue to refuse and resist, there will be justice and judgment. And he will not allow sin into heaven. He kicked one of his most cherished angels out and one-third of the angels with them that he created, that he loved, that he knew. He said, sorry, you can't live here anymore. Not because I don't love you anymore, but because you don't want to be here anymore. Kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden for one sin. But he knew that would destroy them and destroy this earth. And we see the results of it. We see it being lived out today. And so God has an accountability. That's why he had to bring the flood, to put it to a stop, because if he didn't, they would have killed themselves eventually. They would have destroyed themselves. But God had Noah, and he preserved Noah. Because Noah chose to serve God. Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. And God preserved him. It's so God's throne. It's based on that, but God's throne also is not just law. And it's easy for us to focus just on law and get too into the law and too into just judgment. But also needs to be tempered with mercy and patience and long-suffering and love and forgiveness. A balance of both. And God is a balanced both. We've seen society ping-pong from one to the other. We've seen religious circles ping-pong from one end to the other. But God is balanced with both. Too often we side with one side or the other. Judgment and law, or just mercy and love and love and love and love and love. This wishy-washy love that won't stand for anything, that lets everyone get along away with anything. And that's not biblical. That's not godly. That's not healthy. It's not good. And the rainbow should remind us of all those things and remind us of God and remind us of God's throne and the judgment to come. So it's in Revelation, it's in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, account of the flood. The divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. So Genesis mentions the flood account. The Moses writing it believed in the flood account. Yeshua mentions it in I think all the Gospels, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. So he believed and knew it was an actual account. And Peter describes it as an actual account. And amazingly that there are some professed people who believe in the Bible who doubt the actual account of the flood. And we've seen in the last few weeks the evidence in our own bodies that we are amazingly and miraculously made and sustained and all the geological evidence of the flood that is there today that it proves it, that we are on a short age of the earth. We haven't been around for billions and billions of years but a short period of time as the Bible describes and that everything was destroyed. We have the evidence today in the fossil record. We have it in the coal beds. We have it in the volcanoes in the Pacific and the Atlantic and, and seashells on top of Mount Everest. We have the evidence. But amazing. And, and throughout the Bible, all these Bible writers talking about it as literal. And if we deny it, then we've got to rip out whole sections of the Bible. Not just one chapter, two chapters, three chapters in the beginning but all the rest. We say Peter didn't know what he was talking about. Yeshua didn't know what he was talking about. No, it was an actual event. It has important significance for us today. So as Peter writes here, the divine long-suffering waited 
in the days of Noah. God was long-suffering. God's mercy was there, giving them 120 years of preaching, of warning before the flood came. And again, as I mentioned, the animals. God's long-suffering was there, his divine long-suffering, and him saving Noah's family. But also the flood, the water, that cleansed and destroyed. And then another book that Peter wrote, referred to as 2 Peter chapter, in chapter 3, verse 3, scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So here again, in Peter's writings, we see this balance of both. The long-suffering of God, and yet they perished because of refusal to surrender to God's long-suffering. And they will be scoffers in the last days, as there were scoffers then, scoffing at Noah, mocking Noah, doubting Noah. It hasn't rained since. The water comes up from the earth, and the dew waters the trees and the plants. You're talking about water from the sky. They doubted and they scoffed. In these last days, they scoff. Oh, what flood, what water, what destruction of the earth. The Bible's not accurate. You can go on any continent, as we've learned, and everywhere on every continent, there's this chalk layer. There was water all over the earth, all at the same time. On every continent, we have evidence that the flood was here not long ago and everywhere at one time. But they're scoffing in the last days, and walking according to their own lusts. Well, how apropos. Peter's talking about lusts and the flood. And today, they mesh their lusts with the rainbow. How could Peter know that? How could he put those two together and see that? And again, we all are born with lustful tendencies. We're all born perverted, but we all need to be born again all of us, and transformed and changed. So there's lust, there's the perverted lust, sexual perverted lusts, and there's lusts of pride and lusts of greed, lust for money, lust for fame, all kinds of lust. Walking according to their lusts, and we're seeing that too now. Openly, proudly, boasting that they're walking in perverted lusts. Not only the fake rainbow flag movement, but those of fame and fortune, boasting of their pride and their lusts and their greed for power and wealth and fame. Doubting God. When's he coming? You've been saying that for a long time. Well, that's the long-suffering of God. That's the mercy of God. That's the patience of God. Don't take it for granted. And they forget that the world was destroyed with a flood. And how come they forget? Because we've allowed them to forget. We've allowed them to steal the rainbow that's set there to remind them. And thus they forget. And we don't tell them and don't remind them this passage continues, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. The heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, in which the heavens will pass away and a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Here again, we see this balance, this beauty of mercy and judgment brought together in the same mouthful, the same breath. And it says the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. 
Why the heavens? Why do the skies have to be destroyed? Why does God have to destroy the skies? What's wrong with the skies? There's junk up there. We're shooting stuff up there. We're sending stuff up there. We got satellites floating around up there. We got rockets up there. We got parts of rockets that we sent up there floating around up there. We got stuff on the moon. <laughs> we left garbage up there. Right? There's some golf ball there somewhere. You know, there's, there's stuff up on the moon. We, we polluted everything. We got this aircraft on the Mars. You know, So he's got to destroy the heaven. How did Peter know that? How did Peter know that we were going to send all this stuff into the skies that the heavens would have to be destroyed as well? That is amazing. God knows. God sees. Just as God was able to see that, God sees into your future. God knows your future. God knows the plans he has for you as well. He knows where you've been. He knows what you're going through. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And he wants to spare us. Because he's not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want any that should perish. The love of God, the long-suffering of God, the mercy of God. That's not what he's wanting. He's not willing that any should perish. But they should be allowed to just continue to live on however they want, whatever feels good, do it. Is that what it says? No. He's not willing that any should perish because he loves us. He wants everyone in heaven. But is he going to allow everyone into heaven? not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, is that just the, those are the gay lifestyle that he wants to come to repentance? No. All, you and me, all of us, all the world needs to come to repentance. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all decrepit at heart. We're all miserable, proud, blind, and naked at heart. We're all boastful. We need to be surrendered. We need to surrender and die to self. And be renewed and made new and recreated. And that's what the Son came for. To do that and demonstrate that. That he would die for our sins and be resurrected to newness of life. And that we also all come to repentance because he's going to destroy the earth and he will burn it up and destroy the whole planet. Now he destroyed it all with water the first time. What was the means that God used primarily or first mentioned to destroy the earth the first time? We looked at it a few weeks ago. What did he use? How did he destroy the earth? With water? But what means did the water, how did he use the water? The water that was inside the earth said the fountains of the deep. The waters came from the fountains of the earth. So the waters that were in the earth exploded up in those volcanoes with water and with ash and with dirt and debris spewing into the air. And there's thousands and thousands of volcanoes. They're all spewing their junk up into the sky. And the rain, and that might have been what caused the rain. It hadn't rained prior to that. But it's this water that was in the earth. Well, now what's in the earth? What's in the earth? What do people drill? Gas and oil. And where'd the gas and oil come from? The flood. <laughs> you see how it all ties together? So now, because of the flood, there is oil in the earth. And when God brings fire down from heaven and starts exploding and targeting nuclear, waste, nuclear power plants and nuclear bombs that are storehoused and, and destroying man's method of destroying himself, God starts destroying all those weapons of war. And they start exploding, and the earth starts shaking, and earthquakes start taking place, and fire from the earthquakes start coming place, and the cracks in the earth, and the oil that is within the earth goes on fire. Look at the word it uses there. And the heavens and the earth, which now are preserved by the same word, are reserved. What do we call them? Oil reserves. <laughs> Pretty amazing, huh? <laughs> right? So there's all these oil that God is reserving to destroy the earth. And thus he's going to destroy it next time with fire. 
Again, can you imagine all the gas stations on the earth blowing up and burning up? And all the oil wells and all the oil uh, refineries and, and all the oil platforms and they start blowing up. And then all the oil that is still in the earth all starts exploding. You can see how this will easily, all the elements will melt with fervent heat. I mean, how hot would that get? Everything, all the oil all over the earth, all the natural gas and oil gas and all that that's inside the earth and outside the earth begins all burning up at one time. Everything will melt. Hardened steel will melt. Gold, silver will melt. Blacktop will melt. Everything will melt. All the elements will melt. The concrete will melt. It will all melt. Become a big molten mass all over again. Big lake of fire just burning up. And so he's reserved these oil in the ground. So it's better for us to use it now. Right? So use up the oil, go burn the oil, go get a diesel engine, right? burn it up. And if they start questioning that, you say, well, I'm just making it easier on you later on. <laughs> you know, it'll be hot, less hot later on if I burn up some of this fuel now. So drill, baby, drill. <laughs> get some of that oil out because that's their reserve for a purpose to destroy this earth. And just as the waters that were inside the earth, now the oil that's inside the earth will be used to destroy this earth. And this text continues in verse 11, 2 Peter chapter 3. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, Therefore, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So it's just a Noah's Ark all over again. God's mercy, God's long-suffering, God not wishing that any should uh, perish, but come to repentance and the warnings going forth, and then the refusal, and then the destruction, first with water, next time with fire, and then after the destruction, a new earth. Go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. And again, the same with us, just as we need to go through that process of confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, being cleansed through immersion, and then come to newness of life. Not only are we to be baptized with water, we are to be baptized with fire. Water and fire. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> two things that are mentioned there, and then we have in the two destructions of the earth, water and fire. And in both, they come forth newness of life. And so we, we allow the fire of God's love to burn out of us everything that's not of him. To cleanse us of our sinfulness. To destroy the carnal nature. To fill us with his Holy Spirit. So that a new heart and a new life and all things become new. New desires. New interests. New attitudes. New direction. New power to overcome the habits and the sins and tendencies in our lives. He transforms us and changes us just as he'll transform this earth and make all things new, a new heavens and new earth. He transforms us and changes us. And we don't look the same. We don't act the same. We don't think the same by his grace, by his power. And so all the whole thing all over again. And so God calls us to look for and to hasten his coming. How can we hasten his coming? Okay? Preaching it. How can we hasten his coming? Pray, yeah. How can we hasten his coming? Spread the gospel. Yes, that's all true. How can we hasten his coming? Okay, so say, blessed are you who come in the name of the Lord. How can we hasten his coming? When this gospel goes to all the world, the end, the end shall come. Yes, preaching the gospel. How can we hasten his coming? Okay, yes. Warn the whole world, yes. How can we hasten his coming? I left it on the wall for you. How can we hasten his coming? That's right, by living holy lives. <laughs> right? What persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness 
looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. I even underlined it for you, right? So that's how we hasten it, by living holy lives, by living godly lives. It's not just preaching, it's not just saying it, it's not just hiring some orator to say it, it's not just writing in a book and sending it forth, but it's living it out where they see it, where holy lives match up with the word of God, which match up with God's Bible, which match up with the word of our testimony. Because otherwise we're just hypocrites. We're saying one thing and not living it, and we're just hypocrites and no one will believe with that, and that won't hasten his coming. But we hasten his coming by living holy lives. How can we live holy lives and godly lives? Confession. Surrender. Believe and be immersed. Be born again. Right. All the things we've been talking about, right? Go through that process of confessing our sins, letting go of our sins, letting Yeshua take them away from us, letting him nail them to the cross and bury them in the tomb. Let him bring forth a new life in us. And live his life in us and out of us through his power of his Holy Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we live holy, godly lives. Not in our own strength, not in trying harder, but surrendering and letting God live in us and through us. And bring us into harmony with his word, his whole word. Everything from Genesis to Revelation. Bringing us in harmony to his word. Thus we're living holy and godly lives that match up with the scriptures. By his grace. By his power. Through the Holy Spirit. And so we see the flood mentioned in Genesis. We see it mentioned in the Gospels. We see it mentioned in 1 Peter and 2 Peter. It's also mentioned... Uh, Oh, we get Genesis again, continues, the sign of the covenant I make with you and every creature is with you, perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And then also in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 54, verse 9, like the waters of Noah to me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you, nor rebuke you. What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful promise. God's love for his people, God's love for those that surrender to him. That's a wonderful, beautiful promise. And this text in context, I wanted to pull a few verses before and after it, but I, looking at the chapter, I couldn't see where to stop. So I'm just going to read the whole chapter. I won't comment on it. We'll just read the whole Isaiah 54 together. Isaiah 54 comes right after Isaiah 53, which is a beautiful chapter describing the Messiah, his birth and his death, and becoming the atonement for us. And then Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate and the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. You will forget the shame of your youth and not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore, for your maker is your husband, for the Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife, when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forgotten you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is the waters of Noah to me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you, nor rebuke you. 
for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you, you shall whoever assembles against you, you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Amen. So in a moment when we pray, God's been speaking to your heart and mind about something. Maybe the balance of the love and the justice and judgment. And you're attracted to that. You want to know more of a God who's balanced. Maybe you've been hearing, maybe you've been believing, maybe you've been thinking of a God who just is wishy nothing love. And you want that balance. Maybe you've looked at him as a harsh judge You've looked at God's word as just laws. You want that balance, love and justice mingled together. In a moment we pray, ask God to give you that clear, balanced view of him in your mind and heart. Maybe your life has not been balanced. Maybe you've been too uh, permissive of others and allowed others, your animal, your pet, your children, or whoever, to just walk all over you take and abuse you and Get away with it, never correct, never say no. Or maybe you're so harsh and judgmental and condemning of others, you chase other people away. You want more balance, you want to be like God. Merciful, and yet have boundaries. Loving, and yet not allowing yourself or others to be abused. In a moment we pray, ask God to bring that balance into your life, that wholeness into your life. Maybe you have thought of the rainbow in different ways than God had originally planned it. Maybe you see it as just maybe a beautiful thing in the sky. Maybe you see it as a symbol of some perversion. Maybe you see it as some lucky charm or something. But you now see it as God's promise, God's covenant. And God's warning, reminder of his love and a reminder of his judgment. You want to thank God for the rainbows? In a moment we pray, you can praise him and thank him. For that mercy he's shown to you and that love he's shown to you and the warnings that he's given you. If God has convicted you to some area in your life, maybe you're eating blood or you're eating meat with blood, maybe you haven't taken that into account. You see now, God's word says, do not do that. Has since the beginning and all throughout. Never allowed the eating of blood. And you want God to change you. Change your habits. Change where you shop. Change what you eat. We need God's spirit to do that. Can't do it in our own strength. God can change us. God can transform us. And so if that applies to you in a moment when we pray, surrender that to him. Give that over to him. Confess it. Be cleansed washed with water, cleansed by fire, 
renewed by his spirit. God has revealed some other lusts in your life. Maybe sexual lust, maybe perverted lusts, maybe lusts of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life, maybe greed, selfishness, covetousness, lust for power, lust for fame, lust for position, jealousy. You want to surrender that to the Lord. Be forgiven and cleansed. And accept his grace, accept his forgiveness, accept his transformation. If you've been scoffing at God and in denial of him and in resistance to him and in rebellion against him in any way, in any form, any area, you want to surrender your life to him, be renewed by him, accept his love, accept his mercy, accept his death in your behalf, and accept his transforming power and love. And the moment when we pray, you can do that. Let him live in you and out of you for his honor and for his glory. So if any of those areas apply to you, let's pray that God do his work. Our Lord and our God, creator of all things, creator of this earth, creator of each one of us, thank you, Lord, for loving us with an everlasting love. Thank you for loving us and caring for us. Thank you for loving us so much that you don't leave us as we are. Thank you that you love us to warn us and to change us, to transform us, and to bring us into harmony with you, to make us godly in you. Lord, use us, take us, Transform us, renew us, cleanse us, live in us and out of us, and use us in demonstrating your love to this world, balanced love, mercy and justice together. Use our lips, use our actions, use our hands, use our words. Speak your truth through us. Warn this world and prepare this world for your coming. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.